If you have your Bibles open to Joshua, chapter 1 will be there mostly, and then we'll refer back to chapter 3 and chapter 4. You working on that, Mike? Um, seven years ago, gave this sermon, and we had two aisles in the gym, and about midway up on the left was Kenny Smith. And so he's kind of sequestered over here now, but I didn't know Kenny that well. He maybe had visited a few times, and, and we were just three months old. Um, and after the sermon, he said, hey, nice sermon, but we'll see. And I thought, wow. Uh, you know, there's some other good churches around town, brother. <laughs> Uh, but the idea was that we, we were laying a foundation and we wanted to, to say this is where we're standing, but he understood the same thing I understood, that it's not that difficult to articulate a foundation. It's much more difficult to stay on the foundation. And so he had the same kind of skepticism that I have is that we'll see. We'll see if this is what happens. And so kind of what like Joshua did in chapter 4, he brought these stones out and he set up this a uh, place that people would walk by this altar and they would say, well, now why, why would these 12 stones be here? They just didn't happen. And because people will pass this way that didn't actually cross the Jordan, Joshua set this up to say when people come by and they don't know the story, somebody's got to tell them the story, that God's our foundation and how he brought us into this particular land. And so today we repeat a sermon that we've repeated every year for seven years. Uh, starting in 2002, and that helps us remember why we're here, what what we're standing on, and the principles that we're uh, getting today come out of the book of Joshua, primarily chapter 1 and chapter 3. I started uh, the sermon seven years ago with this illustration, and that is that my wife is a special education teacher, and so pretty frequently she gets called on to uh, analyze and diagnose if somebody has some sort of disability. And I've given her 22 years to work on, you know, that and sharpen her skill because I have a lot of disabilities and she's been able to use me as a project. And pretty early on in our marriage, she diagnosed me with CNFI. And probably a few people have this same thing, whether they really recognize it or not. But CNFI is cannot fix it. And so she just recognized, I mean, she grew up in a house whose father could, you know, turn a lawnmower into a washing machine. And so she just assumed every guy had this skill. And so when something broke, she'd just say, Paul, this is broken, and somehow I would do something and it would work again. But I just got, I just got, I made problems worse. And so now in my toolbox... I have a hammer and a cell phone. Because if a hammer can't fix the problem, then I should immediately call for help. I need no other tool at all. But as it would happen, pretty frequently, you, you have a guy who's got some ego, like me, and projects come along, and you say this, Oh, this will be simple. Anyone could do this project, Nancy. And she'll say, well, does it require more than a hammer? And I'll be like, well, yeah, but, you know, this is... 
And I have all these explanations of how easy the project's going to be, and she's just learned to, to sort of let me go. Well, when we bought a, our first house here in Wilmington, we had a backyard that we just wanted to put a fence on, just no gate, no, no, no big hardware, no turns. It was just one straight line. That's all we wanted to do. And the best thing about the project was that Lowe's provided the fence already made. And so all you had to do is stick the post in and then put up this fence. That was it. No, no hammering individual boards. And I thought, if anyone couldn't do this. And so I put these nine posts in. And how I got them straight, I don't know, but I got them straight. And then I put up my first board. And so I'm holding this eight-foot wooden piece of fence, and I'm trying to hold it on and nail it up on one side and then nail it up on the other side. And I'm, I'm getting it up, and I'm looking at the first one. I'm measuring, and I'm going, yes, it is simple. I can do it. I'm only a quarter of an inch off on this end. Now, the, the ground was not perfectly level, so you could not tell just by looking at the fence that you're just a quarter of an inch off until you put up the second panel. And see, now you're putting up the second panel, and its foundation now is a quarter of an inch off. And then when you go down eight more feet, suddenly I realized at the end of this second panel, I was four inches off the ground. And I calculated, without putting this one up, I was really smart, that if I kept going for eight more panels, my fence would be 30 feet off the ground, which more or less defeats the idea of a fence if it's 30 feet in the air. And so I had to go back, and I had to get that first panel right. It couldn't be a quarter of an inch off. It had to be perfect, because then when I put the next square on, when I put the next person in, when I put the next generation in, when a whole new congregation comes in and they push themselves up against what the last generation did, if it's even a quarter of an inch off, then a next generation, we're going to be four inches off. And in the next generation, we're going to be way, way off. And it will only be a few generations until we have something totally different. And so what we're learning from this sermon and really just remembering this sermon is we've always got to go back and be working on the foundation. We can't ever just make assumptions of the foundation. And we heard this, didn't we, just a couple of weeks ago when we introduced the uh, letter of 1 John. Remember 1 John, he's coming back. He's coming back as an old man. He's probably in his 80s. The, the, the first group of this early church has sort of gone and been with the Lord, and now we have a second generation. And when we've got to the second generation, John looks back and says, you're losing your foundation. You're slipping away. I mean, you're holding on to a lot of it, but the little pieces that you're letting go of in another generation, you won't have the gospel anymore. And so he's doing the same thing that I'm remember, reminding of us today. We've, we've got to go back and address the foundation and, and put ourselves back on the foundation so we don't even get a quarter of an inch off. Everyone knows this. Even if you're 10 years old, you've heard this. Now, Paul, if you tell a little lie right now, what's going to happen? 
it's going to grow into a really big lie. So we have to be very mindful of that. Well, when um, we looked at this passage several years ago, we noticed three foundational points, and I'm just going to make those three points again. First, what you see in the foundation is God's chosen leadership. The second thing that you see is the necessity and the primacy of God's word. And the third thing you see is courage. So in the foundation, what we talked about from Joshua here, he's trying to found a nation. He's moving across into the promised land, and he's trying to establish a foundation. And what we notice is God has a leader in mind. That leader must be following after the Word of God, and it's going to take courage on everyone's part. First of all, let's look at the first point, God's chosen leadership. Now, God can operate in many different ways, and He's bringing renown to His name. And He can do that through creation. He can do that through a congregation. He can lead out in any way He wants to. But primarily, He leads out through a godly leader. And you see that right in the beginning of of Genesis chapter 1. Adam is established as a leader. And so, when God comes walking in the garden after the fall, who is He looking for? What's the first thing that gets said? Adam, where are you? Now, now why doesn't he say Eve? I mean, isn't she the one that took the apple and took a bite and gave it to Adam? Why doesn't he say, he's come walking in the garden saying, Adam and Eve, where are you two? But he doesn't. He comes in and he says, Adam, where are you? You are the leader. Why did you let this evil into your family? Why didn't you protect your wife? I'm coming and looking for the leader. And if we don't have uh, the right leader at the center of the column, then we're going to have chaos in every other area. And so he's coming back and he's looking for a leader. Now he continues even after the fall to do this. You see it with Abraham and Moses and David. You see it in the New Testament with James, the leader of the church, or Peter or Paul. You see it in church history when you think about Augustine or you think about Calvin or you think about Wesley. Always God is using at least one of his ways of proclaiming his name is to have a godly leader at the center of the column. And this is what Ravi Zacharias says about godly leadership. There are no bona fide mass movements. It just looks that way. At the center of the column is a man or a woman who knows their God and where their God is going. There is no abstract movement that is moving ahead. No, there are individuals who are moving ahead, and therefore the cause of Christ is going forward. There are no bona fide mass movements without somebody at the center of the column who knows God and is following after God. And before we look at two character traits of this godly leadership, I just want to remind us why that's important for us. And that's because seven years ago in 2002, I delivered this sermon. And seven years have gone by like that. I mean, think of Anna Barton being 11 
and now she's 18. And one day I'll deliver my last sermon from this pulpit. And so the reason we need to all corporately be remembering that is because it's going to be your responsibility as leaders, as elders, as members of the church to put a man behind this column who's saying the same things. Granted, he has different styles and different characteristics and different strengths, but this is a column. And behind this column, we, ha- we must have one person who knows the Lord and is moving forward towards Him. A couple of characteristics that we see in Joshua chapter 1 um, for his leadership. The characteristics of a godly leader. First, Joshua 1.1, 1, 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua. The, the leader's primary concern is to, to listen to God and to lead from His Word. Not listen to the people and lead from their desires. That's a big difference. We must have a godly leader that's peering into the Word of God, studying the Word of God. Not somebody who's perfect, obviously, but somebody who's listening to to God and moving in in a Godward direction and bringing people in that direction. We cannot have somebody at the center of column who's taking a poll or taking the temperature of the congregation or the temperature of the surrounding world and saying, well, given all those factors, then I'll move in that direction. We need somebody who's moving because God has spoken to them. You remember um, Mark chapter 1. This is one of my favorite Bible stories. If the leader at the center of the column is not listening to God, then he's always going to be um, picked on by the culture. The culture is always going to take you probably in, in a different direction. And it may not be obvious at the time. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus has just finished a, a long night of ministry. And the ministry's been so productive that all the people have been ministered to go back to their homes and say, hey, you need to come back and see this guy I just met named Jesus. Come back in the morning. Well, early in the morning, before anybody gets up, Jesus gets up and he finds himself a solitary place to pray. And when the disciples get up, they notice the whole town is coming to this one house. And they're going, we're missing the, you know, the, the center of the show. Where's Jesus? And they go and find Jesus and they say, Jesus, we've hit the jackpot. Everyone in the whole town is looking for you. This is a revival that we just haven't seen before. Hurry, let's get back to the town. So all the, the leadership is saying, well, let's go in a, uh, this direction. All the people are saying, we want this. And what did Jesus say? Hey, let's go to a different town. This is revival. The Spirit's moving. Let's go for it. But you see, Jesus was listening to God. He was not listening to His followers. He was not listening to the world. And so we always have to remember that we have to have a godly leader who's really got his ear on what God wants to do and willing to follow in that direction. Second, second thing is that we have to have a leader who is not going to be distracted by novelty. In a book by 
David Wells, he writes this. It is Easter morning 2006, and there lurking in the shadows is a figure rarely seen in church. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. He leaps tall buildings in a single bound. He pursues evildoers. No, no, wait a minute. It's not him. Actually, it's the senior pastor. The senior pastor, all decked out, is Superman. Now, I don't want you to visualize this. Just hear the words. Ready to communicate the gospel to a new generation. Superman, you see, is the Christ figure who is particularly adapted to conveying the Christian message to generations raised on Sesame Street. Cartoons, superhero action figures. So on this day, the pastor was poised to begin his instruction in a new series on how to leap over discouragement, overcome doubts, defeat odds, and rise from the ashes as Superman had on many occasions. Spiritual feats of this magnitude seem much more likely, wouldn't you agree, when prompted by the sight of a resplendent Superman in his tights and regalia. This is the video-crazed, image-driven, pictureless, picture-conscious culture, not a literate one. Our minds are entirely inert, lifeless, useless, until prodded into action by some sight. Images are the fuel. When injected into the motor, it kicks it into life. Without them, our minds are limp. Well, at least that's the theory. Is this an antidote plucked from an obscure part of the evangelical vineyard in America? Did it really happen? Is it so bizarre as to be unrepresentative? This incident actually happened in a church that received an award for Church of the Year. Besides this co-opting of showbiz, this transformation of Christianity into entertainment is rapidly becoming the norm, not the exception. Pastors are straining to outdo each other and becoming as slick as any show in Las Vegas. I mean, it is a great pressure to entertain. It is a great pressure to use novelty. I feel that pressure. The elders feel that pressure. And so we're just reminding ourselves here that that we're not trying to do anything new. We're not trying to do anything novel. We're trying to, as Jeremiah says, we're... We're looking for the ancient paths. We're trying to walk in the... If you walk in the ancient paths, guess what? That's novel. And so that's the direction that we're trying to lead. And you can pray for your elders because all the time there's something that's fighting for the center of the column other than Christ. And so I as the pastor and we as the leaders, elders, we're always having to say, let's make sure... Jesus is at the center of the column. We don't want another person at the center of the column. We we don't want some program at the center of the column. We don't want something that's sort of going to be novel or outreach-oriented at the center of the column. The center of the column has to be Jesus Christ. And then from that center, we can do all those other things. The second characteristic of a godly leader is uh, he must be a servant. We see that here. Moses is called a servant. Joshua is called a servant. Peter, Paul, James. Everybody's called a servant in the Old and New Testament. 
In the New Testament, the word leader is used less than ten times. And the word servant, over a hundred. And trying to describe what a leader really looks like. But one of the causes for division in the church at Corinth is that they tried to build their church around a particular personality. Remember that? Paul comes in and he comes into the church and some people say, well, I'm, I'm in the Paul camp and I'm in the Peter camp and I'm in the Apollos camp. And he had this church who were really at its foundation an individual, not Jesus Christ. And Paul, trying to rein all that in, he says this in 1 Corinthians 4, let men regard us, each one of these men that you're sort of circling around, let men regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. That's what we are. We're stewards of the mystery of God. And so Paul understood that every person, everything that gets done, has to point back to the center of the column, and at the center is Jesus Christ. Great statue in London of John Wesley. John Wesley was five foot two. He preached over 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. At 83, he was angry at a doctor because he wouldn't let him preach more than 14 times in one week. At 86, he wrote this in his journal. Laziness is slowly creeping in. There is an increased tendency to stay in bed after 5.30 in the morning. Okay. Feeling pretty small right now. This is what's written on his statue. Reader, if you feel constrained to praise the instrument, don't. Give God the glory. You see, at the center of the column, Wesley understood, had to be Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for us to want to put an instrument at the center and say, that's it. But you see, no matter how good the instrument is, no matter how close Paul or Peter or James, or Paul Phillips is, he's at least at the end a quarter of an inch off. And for some of those names, a lot further off. So that if you put yourself up against that, then at the end of your life, you're going to be much further off. And so Wesley understood at the center of the column, we have to have Jesus Christ. So we have to have a person who's really following after the Lord, and they have certain characteristics. The second thing we see is the need to establish the primacy of God's Word. When you build a fence and you're trying to build, if you're just trying to do something in a straight line, you always drop what's called a plumb line. It's sort of a chalk line and that you would say, well, I know that's straight, so no matter whatever I put up against it, it's going to tell me if it's right or wrong. And that's what the, the Bible is. That's what the word canon means. It means it's a straight line. So here at Christ Community Church, we're always pushing ourselves up against the Bible. We're not starting with our opinions. We're not starting any other way. We're saying, what is it that the Bible has to say? That's our plumb line. And notice that there's two exhortations here to Joshua in this first chapter on keeping the, the Bible as the foundation. The first one you see in 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous being careful to do everything written in the Bible. Don't turn. Don't, don't move to the right. Don't move to the left. Be careful to do everything 
written in it. Meditate on it day and night. God saying to Joshua, you know, Joshua, the world is going to throw you all kinds of distractions. Some of them are going to be delights. But that's not what you're measuring yourself up against. You're measuring yourself up against the Word of God. If you're a pilot, you receive a visual flight rating so that you could fly a plane when you have some reference to the horizon or to the ground. But if it ever gets foggy or cloudy or conditions that you don't have a visual reference, then you can't fly your plane on that day until you get what's called an instrument rating. And then, you know, you can fly in any kind of conditions because you're not flying in reference to the ground or any other external reference points. You're flying according to what your instruments say on the panel. Because when you're a pilot and you get into fog and you don't have a reference point, pilots have been known to fly themselves into the ground thinking they were going up in the air. Turning right when they think they were left. Believing they were flying right side up when the whole time they were flying their plane upside down. They don't have any kind of visual reference point. And if you don't have an instrument rating, then you can't keep the plane straight and going in the right direction. And so we have to have an instrument rating. We can't be taking our clues from the culture. We've got to be taking our clues from the instrument, God's Word. This is the way you should fly. This is the way you should go. Walk in it. Don't move to the right or to the left. One pilot instructor said this, The toughest part of earning an instrument rating is learning to have unquestioning faith in the instruments. When your eyes say one thing and the instruments tell you another, you must trust the instruments or face disaster. Young men, your eyes many times will tell you one thing. And it'll feel like everything in your body is saying, yes, do not trust that. Trust the instruments. Trust God's Word. So many times we find ourselves in places that we just, it's got to be right. And then we need to go back to God's Word. We need to bump ourselves up against God's Word and making sure we're moving in the right direction. There was a verbal illustration, and now there's a visual illustration. What? The importance of God's Word. God comes to Moses and says, don't turn to the right or the left. And then there's this visual illustration. Remember, the plan, get the people together. You're going to go across the Jordan River. I'm going to part. You're going to be in the land of Canaan at the end of the day. But what's going to be out in front of us? The Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The words of God. And it's not just right in front of us. How far out in front of us is it? A thousand yards. So we, we've got the Word of God way out in front. We don't want it to be confused with anybody close to it. It's just the Word of God. And he says you've got to have that out front. Why? You've never been this way before. You have no idea where you're going. So I want to, I want to make sure you've got plenty of distance and you can see... And you're following in this direction. I had never delivered a sermon until I started at Christ Community Church. I mean, I would not have hired myself 
and I was a founder. I mean, I got my resume and said, this guy, we don't want him. I haven't been this way before. I haven't ever built a building. I haven't been the pastor of a congregation before. The questions that come up, I don't know the answers to most of them right off the top of my head. I'm trying to get God's Word way out in front so I can say, God, here's one thing I know. I don't want to go my way. I want to go your way. So would you please lead? Would you get way out in front? So even if I turn to the right or the left, I got some margin for error to get back in line. And so that's what we're doing here at Christ Community Church. So many times people come up with the ideas and things, and lots of them turn out to be great. But so many of them, we don't know. There's not anybody in here who's planted five or six different churches. And so we're all trying to figure out, which way does God want this church to go? We can't go in every direction. But which direction does He want us to go? And let's follow after Him as He leads us according to His Word. So Joshua gets a verbal illustration. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't turn to the right or left. Meditate on it day and night. And then he gets this visual illustration as well. Finally, it takes courage to do this. I've always thought of this passage this way. Joshua, you notice in chapter 1, I think it's verse 6, 7, and 9 or something like that. It's just repetitive. Be strong and courageous. And my inclination has been to say, well, okay, if Joshua is getting this three times from the Lord, then he can see, the Lord can see that Joshua might not might be weak and fearful. He looks into Joshua and says, Joshua, I can see that your tendency is to be weak and fearful. I don't want you to be weak and fearful. I want you to be strong and courageous. Now, what would make Joshua weak and fearful? Now, what I've always thought is the people in Canaan. I mean, he's going to Jericho. It's got a big wall around it. He's got to march around it, blow a trumpet. He's got all these people. And you you remember from Numbers, I think it's 12 or 14, the spies had gone into Jericho. Remember they came back out, and what did they say? There are giants over there, and we look like grasshoppers. And so I always just thought, well, Joshua, his primary Fear is facing the people that he's going to face when he gets into the promised land. But then I thought, well, you know what? Joshua was only two, one of two people who came back out and said, let's go back in. Remember the other ten spies said, no, we shouldn't go back in. They got the whole crowd raised up about it, and they spent 40 years wandering in the desert. And so I kept thinking, well, if Joshua was willing to go in then, why would he be so fearful right now? What had Joshua witnessed in the 40 years in the desert that might make him afraid? It wasn't the people he was going to face. It was the people he was called to lead. Who was mucking it up? Was it the Canaanites? No. It was God's people. When, when Joshua came back down 
off of the mountain with Moses, what did he see? A big golden calf that the people decided, well, we want God, but we also want this idol too. Joshua could see from his experience that people were living fearfully. What happens if we don't get any water right now? Where is God? And then they said, you know what? We're just not eating well enough out here in this desert. And we would rather go back and be slaves in Egypt than to go forward. We want onions and melons and cucumbers in Egypt. And then he saw Moses' own sister and then the second man, Aaron, come in and do a power play for Moses' power. So Joshua had witnessed all of these things, and then God says, Hey, hey, Joshua, you're the next leader. Oh, wow, what an opportunity. I don't think Joshua was afraid of getting an arrow from somebody in front of him. Where was he afraid of getting an arrow from? The people behind. Let's pick this guy off because we don't want to go in his direction. Now, look, there are all kinds of giants out in our world. And they would cause us to be afraid. But the thing that could derail what God wants to do at Christ Community Church is not the people outside these four walls. It's the people inside. Because you see it in the New Testament. The same thing in the disciples. They're afraid. They're going for power plays over each other and even over Jesus. They're doing all the things that the Israelites were doing. In Christ Community Church, we are no different. We, sin has a common denominator all the way through history. And we could say, I'm just too afraid to go forward. So let's stay in here and not do anything out there. I'm comfortable and I don't want to be made uncomfortable. I don't really like the direction, so I'm going to do a power play so I can get my way. All of those things are on the table at Christ Community Church. And any one of those things can derail what God wants to do much more quickly than somebody outside that we're trying to reach. So we have to have courage. We as a congregation, we must have courage in the sovereignty of God. That He is ultimately in control. That He's bringing about what He wants to see happen. And yes, we have to put somebody at the center of the column here. And yes, we have to follow after God's Word. But you and I don't know. And at some point, we have to say, we're just going to trust God in the direction that He wants to make us go. Now, if you're fearful... If you're not willing to sacrifice, if you'd rather go in your own way rather than serve, then in order for a whole congregation to start let go, starting to let go of those things, then they've got to have a center point to come back to all the time. And what is that center point? Right here. Are you? overcome death for you. So even if it ends up in your own death, you're going to be alive because of Christ. Do you not want to sacrifice? Look at the sacrifice of Christ. 
Would you really rather be in control? Look that the Son of God gave up that for your behalf. So that's why we, one of the reasons we remember. We remember what God has done. Not just so we can get into heaven, but so that we can live godly lives while we're here, displaying the glory of God to one another and to the world. Jesus comes and He takes the cup and He takes the bread. And He says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another. What a help to us as we come down the aisle and sit and walk in two rows and we sit next to people and you wonder about them. Who are they? Which direction are they going? Should I be afraid of this person? We've got to love one another. And in loving one another, we display Christ and His incredible love for us. We don't have to be afraid. Lord, I pray that you would divinely take these very common elements and do something divine. Do something that a, a word from a pastor could not do. The passion of a voice couldn't do. But as your people come and partake of your body and your blood and your sacrifice, may you do something, Holy Spirit, for these people, in these people, for your name and for your glory, I pray.